0: Every now and then, the Republican leader of the Vermont State Senate, Joe Benning, pens an op-ed in which he scolds the right. A few days ago, one such piece was published in the local media where Benning criticized President Trump for his recent war of words with those high-profile congresswomen that the national media has dubbed the Squad. Benning wrote, quote, the four targeted Congresswomen are by no means guiltless in the ridiculous rancor coming from Washington, but they are not in my party. As a Republican, my concern starts with how a neutral observer perceives the party I belong to, end quote. Silence is not in my DNA, Benning adds, as he complains that he will be labeled as a rhino for taking a stand perhaps if he criticized anyone other than the right, he may not have to worry about being branded as a Republican in name only. Now some argue that he is ultimately irrelevant. There are only 7 Republicans in a state Senate of 30. But I want to highlight his article because of the argument that he and other Scott Troopers often bandy about. That is, conservatives and populists on the right in Vermont insist on ideological purity. This episode will examine this contention and attempt to craft an effective response. Ideological Purity means remaining 100% true to your values ideals and principles when you vote so if a candidate does not match you on a key value or set of values you don't vote for him period does wanting to clearly distinguish the right from the left's policies and positions amount to practicing ideological purity for example When I criticized Phil Scott in print about his support for sanctuary state policies in early 2016, many key Republican political operatives and House Republicans vilified me for practicing ideological purity. I couldn't understand that because all I had done was show public support for U.S. border and immigration laws, isn't support for the sovereignty of the U.S. nation and respect for the rule of law integral to right-of-center politics? More recently, I argued that the left has become pro-abortion instead of pro-choice. And it is surprising that Scott and Benning and other Scott troopers support Vermont's new law that reflects this radical position. Moreover, Benning supports a current push to change the Vermont state constitution in order to allow abortion right up to the date of delivery. In US politics, when it comes to the issue of abortion, the left and right have been historically divided as pro-choice on the left and pro-life on the right. Now, things are different. Now, it is pro-abortion on the left and not pro-abortion on the right. So, if Benning is pro-abortion, as the issue has been newly reframed, then isn't he positioning himself on the left? So, on the one hand, he advocates for left of center positions, and on the other hand, he criticizes people on the right who don't agree with his stance. Consequently, people on the right who don't agree with left of center positions are then maligned as ideologues or purists who are uncompromising and therefore intolerant. It seems to me that the Scott troopers want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to appease the left by parroting their positions and at the same time silence legitimate opposition from voices on the right by criticizing them of practicing the ideological purity test. Consider the example of former House Republican leader Don Turner who ran for lieutenant governor last year. I own a communications company and the House Republican Caucus was a past client. So I've had the opportunity to work very closely with Don and I've seen that his natural instincts on issues fall on the right. However, he supports taxing and regulating marijuana and Act 46, which is an education law that consolidates school districts across the state. Now, conservatives took issue with both of these stances because one, they don't support legalizing marijuana, let alone making money off of the drug, and two, they support local control when it comes to public schools. And Act 46 is extremely controversial and has caused a lot of chaos, building on Act 60 and Act 68, which are very complicated, very tortured education financing laws that I will discuss in a forthcoming episode. So last year, Don's campaign staff accused Vermonters of pushing ideological purity once again when they spoke out against his positions on these two key issues. My question is, is that legitimate criticism? I mean, they say beggars can't be choosers, so Are Vermont conservatives supposed to just shut up and vote for the R candidate on the ballot no matter what? Building on that, I have a few more questions that I struggle with. Why must the right accept Montpelier's progressive and democratic status quo? The Scott Troopers say it's because there aren't enough Republican voters in Vermont, so therefore, Republican candidates need to appeal to the middle and left of center Democrats in order to win. But why must we accept the math of the present voting populace as it stands, when we know that so, so many people on the right just do not vote? And why don't they vote? Because they can't tell the difference between Republican and Democratic candidates. When prominent Republicans in office advocate for positions that are clearly on the left, who can blame the average Vermonter with right-leaning proclivities from staying home? What if right-of-center candidates proudly and unabashedly advocated for positions that are conservative? Would that help in getting people who don't vote to come to the ballot? Wouldn't it change the makeup of the current voting population in Vermont? We should aim to get more of the population engaged with the political process. It seems that establishing ideological distinction between the two political aisles is critical to achieving that important goal of getting more Vermonters actively involved with our sociocultural discourse, and political franchise. Let's look at the numbers very broadly. There are a little over 500,000 adults in Vermont, and in high turnout election years, we see around 300,000 votes cast. So where are those missing 200,000 people? Are none of them eligible to vote? Now let's look at the state of Vermont today. For the first time in our history, we are $200 million in the red and this debt will only grow. We rank 49th in the nation for nearly every measure of economic growth and development. Why can't Republicans convince any number of those missing 200,000 Vermonters to vote in favor of a pro-growth agenda? To this point, I've heard some say, oh no, most of them are on welfare or they're the working poor and they're not really interested in voting or if they do vote, they'll vote Democrat. But we don't know if that is actually true because we've never tried. We've never reached out to them. We've never made a case for pro-growth. We haven't distinguished ourselves from the left. There is brand new data to support the latter point. Morning Consult published the 2019 governor approval rankings in which Phil Scott, the Republican governor of Vermont, comes in at fourth place. But here's the kicker. Only 15% of Republicans approve of him, whereas 56% of Democrats in Vermont love the governor. This raises yet another question with which I continually struggle. Why doesn't Phil Scott just run as a Democrat? My only guess is that he doesn't do so because the modern Democratic Party, obsessed with intersectionality and identity politics, has no room and certainly no love for another old white man. Fine, so running as a Republican is his prerogative. But what impact does that have on the rest of us? How can there be a viable and robust future for the right in Vermont? When we are in the midst of an identity crisis, how are we supposed to convince anyone to vote for us when we don't even know who we are? This is not to say that there is only one legitimate voice that speaks for the right in Vermont. On the contrary, the American right has always comprised of a coalition of religious groups, Second Amendment supporters, libertarians, neoconservatives, classical liberals, Reagan Democrats, more recently Trump Democrats, and many more. Notwithstanding the rich diversity of voices and opinions on the right, the philosophical positions and policies proposed by members of this coalition need to fall within defined parameters. Without these parameters, how can we have a viable right in Vermont? Let's try this thought experiment. Let's say if tomorrow the Democrats were abolished and all we had were the Republicans, we still wouldn't have a one-party system. The coalition that I just mentioned attests to the many different voices and opinions and ideologies that form the American right. However, if tomorrow the right were abolished, then what will we get? Well, we would get a communist bloc where absolutely no dissent would be tolerated. Isn't that true for the left? Think about it, as the Democratic Party moves further and further to the left, once highly respected politicians like Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden have now been maligned as racists by the ascendant progressive wing. Doubling down on their zero tolerance of dissent policy, Ayanna Presley, Democratic Party congresswoman from Massachusetts and a member of the aforementioned squad, recently declared, quote, We don't need any more brown faces that don't want to be a brown voice. We don't need black faces that don't want to be a black voice. We don't need Muslims that don't want to be a Muslim voice. We don't need queers that don't want to be a queer voice. End quote. Presley and her cohort couldn't have made it any more clear. As far as the new left is concerned, there is only one valid brown, black, queer, and Muslim voice, and these voices subscribe to a distinctly far-left ideology. Presley and the Progressive Wings Declaration is the very definition of an ideological purity test. Under the new regime of identity politics, It is no wonder that straight white men like Beto O'Rourke, Bernie Sanders, and Joe Biden are having such a hard time on the national stage as they try to make their case to be the next president of the U.S. Clearly, today's left is a very different animal from the one that storied Vermont Republican politicians faced in the past. George Aiken, Jim Jeffords, Richard Snelling, and Jim Douglas inhabited a dramatically different political landscape. So why do Scott troopers like Benning insist on resurrecting that obsolete brand? Why do they insist on looking backward and not forward to find solutions for today's problems? Why do they insist on rehashing stale, and tired ideas. Why are they bent on renting a room in the house that the progressives built? Sticking to politically right of center principles and standing apart from the left does not amount to practicing ideological purity. That said, it is absolutely imperative to define and communicate the sociopolitical parameters of the political right to the people of Vermont. Vagaries about small government, less spending, yea to the Constitution and nay to Karl Marx will not do. That raises yet another difficult question. Who can and who will wrestle the mantle of leadership away from the Republican governor and legislative honchos? Which person or persons will emerge as the leader of the new right in Vermont. This podcast will strive to find answers to that question as well as all the other challenging, critical, and exciting ones raised in this episode. For more political analysis and an examination of the issues in a state run by the far left, stay tuned for more episodes. I'm super thrilled to share that the podcast is now available on iTunes. So make sure to subscribe for new episodes every Tuesday with bonus Thursday thoughts. Write to me at megpodcastgmail.com at or you can find me on Facebook on my Facebook page, Dialogues with Meg Hansen, where you can watch interviews from my TV show. Until next time, I'm Meg Hansen. And you've been listening to Writing What's Left.